to Big Apple School podcast. This is Mike. And this is John. And today we're talking about what if Cleopatra's nose had been longer? Right. So this question is um, one that is a coverall for what if something different happened in history. In this case, if Cleopatra's nose had been longer, Mark Antony and Caesar Augustus would not have fallen out over her because she wouldn't have been so beautiful. Therefore, the Roman Republic may not have been destroyed and replaced by um, an empire, and Europe, and maybe then the world, would have been a very different place. So what we're looking at is, what if in history? So let's start with, what if France had been victorious during the century of warfare with England from 1700 to 1815. In 1700, France and Britain went to war over the Spanish succession. In 1815, um, Napoleon was finally defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. But in that intervening 115 years, France and Britain were almost constantly at war. In particular, the zenith of this was the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 63, in which England established its hegemony over North, the North American continent. <clears throat> And it's my contention that had France been victorious, the world would be very different simply because we'd all be speaking French, not English. Big Apple would be a French school, not an English school. What do you think, Mike? No, it's interesting. Uh, first of all, you pronounced the word hegemony as hegemony. Yeah. <laughs> so it's actually pronounced hegemony. Correct. <laughs> so was it all throughout my life I heard it as hegemony? I don't know the ins and outs of the Australian education system. So I see, I, I see. Explain that. Okay, all right. No, no, no. It's just uh, we always pronounce it as hegemony. So mm. it's interesting. Um, well, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I always wondered how that guy, Napoleon, yeah, he actually conquered the entire Western and Eastern Europe up to Russia mm -hmm. at that point. I um, mean, he's in the, in the zenith of his career. Mm -hmm. And he really only had Britain to go. And it was really, wonders, I, really I was always wondering, how how did a small British isle yeah, <clears throat> manage to actually defeat Napoleon? How did that happen? I know there was a combined force of Prussians mm -hmm. and whatnot in the end in the in the Battle of Waterloo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the British used what's called a box formation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to to defeat the cavalry. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Napoleon's specialty was both artillery and cavalry, mm -hmm. and, and then they kind of neutralized that with the right tactics. But um, just how how did that actually happen? Well, <clears throat> the case of the Battle of Waterloo specifically, the tactics were that um, the Duke of Wellington had been fighting um, the French in the Peninsular War from, I think it was 1808 until 1812 in Spain, that is. And his series of victories um, were that he knew what the French were going to do and he had the tactics to defeat them. A lot of it was the use of the Brown Bess musket and the training that the British soldiers did was they could fire off something like three, maybe maybe more than that, three or four rounds a minute, whereas French musketeers could only manage one a minute. So therefore, the volume of fire that the, that the British infantry could pour down upon the French soldiers was far greater. And the French used to advance in block formation and the uh, tactic was to, like a sledgehammer but of course that sledgehammer would be greatly dented if you had a row or a double row of redcoats loosing off four rounds per minute per gun 
at you. They didn't have to be that accurate. You were in a big block, so they just fired vaguely in your direction, and the casualties would have been enormous. And that is how, essentially, Wellington defeated Napoleon's armies. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because um, I was, so four rounds a minute. They really mm. did four rounds a minute. Mm-hmm. So every, what, 15, 10 seconds, they can actually reload mm-hmm. and do all that, right? Mm-hmm. Putting the gunpowder and then boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? I was surprised by that because um, uh, basically, you know, I was always wondering if you watch like the movie, like The Patriot and whatnot, mm-hmm. and you see the way at the colonial armies mm-hmm. used to fight. And basically, people would line up in a big row, mm-hmm. march towards cannon fire and mm-hmm. bullet fire mm-hmm. towards it. And I was thinking, why didn't they use cover? Why didn't they use prone position? Mm-hmm. All the basics of, you know, you know, firearm, mm-hmm. you know, battle, just the modern firearm battle was mm-hmm. thrown out the window. And I went, that's so dumb. They're marching towards bullets and mm-hmm. campfire and mm-hmm. chain and chain shots. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I actually had a chat with a guy who's in one of those historic reenactment groups. Yeah, yeah. You know, these guys, they act up mm-hmm. and they act out all, you know, these wars. And he told me, basically the muskets whatnot didn't really have what's called rifling no they so didn't. so they didn't have what's called a spiral like an indentation inside of a barrel mm-hmm. which allows the bullet to spin and that allows you to shoot straight mm-hmm. essentially over long distance and he said that because they didn't the, the aim was kind of like a shotgun approach except the men men were kind of like the shotgun so okay. so if you line up guys in a row and you shot something will hit Mm-hmm. And that's, that was kind of, they were hoping that something will hit. And that was the strategy at the times. Mm-hmm. And, and lives were considered cheap. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, the um, muskets were smooth bore. That means, as you say, without rifling. That's where mm-hmm. you get the word rifle from. Mm-hmm. Because there were rifles. Rifles did exist. But because of the rifling, they used to take so much longer to load. Therefore, the majority of infantry were armed with the smoothbore musket, and they, as you say, weren't a very accurate weapon. So you would fire them in volleys at a target. There's no point hiding behind a a boulder and trying to pick off your enemy with a musket, because you wouldn't be able to do it. The, The general who won the battle was the general who could bring his soldiers onto the battlefield in... Um, a nice long line and bring all their weapons to bear on your enemy before your enemy got his soldiers onto the battlefield and organised to fire their muskets. Therefore, the victorious general was the best drill sergeant, Frederick the Great of Prussia, for instance. And this is why armies began to march and do drill and turn in formations. That's where marching and drill comes from. It's because of the smoothbore musket trying to get volley fire onto your enemy, concentrating it to hit them before they can shoot at you. I mean, those men who fought in those days must have had, you know, balls of steel. I mean, I swear, to actually march towards cannon fire Mm -hmm. just takes a special kind of guts, don't you think? And rum. And rum. (laughs) Are you telling me alcohol was allowed? Oh, yes. Because today, no military allows alcohol Mm -hmm. on the field. So in those days, rum was used not only for medicinal purposes to amputate you. It was actually used to give you courage. It was, was, yes. But it, it was... The ration, I mean, in the Navy, for instance, that's what you drank. You drank um, 
because water was would go off. Uh, you could make your own water, so uh, most of the liquid you drink would have alcohol in it because it was would poison you. Well, sort of. Um, you drink a sort of beer, but rum was given as well. Yeah, I did meet a Frenchman who did say that what uh, the French are used to drinking wine, even as children or something, mm-hmm. because back in the day that was your substitute for water. Yeah, that's how you got your hydration because the water was so dirty. Yeah, had to. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, people didn't drink in the Middle Ages water at all in England. They drank what was called small beer, which was about one one percent alcohol. Mm. They didn't drink, but everyone must have been terribly dehydrated all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they must have had horrible skin. Yeah, you know, I'd, sure I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, returning back to, we are drifting off a bit. Aren't we? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, returning back to England's hegemony over North America. Mm. Yeah, just returning back to that. Um, so. I always thought that Britain, Britain always had a Germany over North America, but it was actually one out of a war mm. than the Germany was. Mm-hmm. Ah, so, so the Statue of Liberty, right, was a gift to the Americans mm-hmm. for their fight against the British. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was like the big return fu mm-hmm. for, for France losing. Mm-hmm. You're telling me that's mm-hmm. right. So we lost. The, the dominion over your colony, mm-hmm. but in return you kick them out. So thank you. <laughs> so we give you the Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. and they sent it in boxes, in mm-hmm. containers, and then mm-hmm. they shipped it over and they mm-hmm. constructed it. Is that am I piecing this history right? Yeah, now? yeah. The French ran out of money to pay for it, and the Americans finished off, I believe. Um, right. And it didn't arrive until the 1870s, I think, or yeah. 80s even. But yes, but yes the, um, it, the, the the first Europeans to um, lay claim to bits of North America were the Spanish, the, the oldest. Um, city in the United States is um, St. Augustine in Florida and that was established by Juan Ponce de Leon in something like 1520, 1530 something like that the French established a settlement further up the coast and the British arrived up in the northeast, you know, the Plymouth Plantation around Boston, etc. And all three countries squabbled over um, North America. Um, at first, of course, they were separated by huge tracts of land where only the Native Americans lived. But eventually they began to butt up against each other and fight each other and compete. The Spanish were soon pushed out or pushed west and south. Um, the Americans, after all, um, uh, in the Louisiana Purchase, after the War of Independence, bought everything west of the Mississippi from the, uh, the Spanish, I think. I stand to be corrected on that. Um, but to the east of the Mississippi, it was Britain and France. And um, during the War of the Austrian Succession, 1740-48, and again, the Seven Years' War later, Britain and France went to it in North America, and eventually um, Britain uh, ejected France from North America, including Canada. Um, But it didn't last long, because, of course, the American War of Independence saw Britain ejected from what is now the United States, but they remained in Canada. But my contention is that had France maintained um, control of the United States, uh, the United States would have spoken French rather than English. You know, you meet some American Southerners, yeah, Mm. and some of them actually do, like, you can kind of tell by their language, there's a little bit of French culture still mixed in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so is that that the kind of roots? 
Could be. Could yeah. be certainly yeah. New Orleans, around New Orleans. Yes, yeah, around those to, areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I'm just thinking, right, so the, they would have spoken French. Do you think, you think the American Constitution would have been written in French? Well, it's, it's interesting. So just suppose, yeah. just yeah. suppose um, that uh, the English were kicked out of North America during the um, war, uh, Seven Years' War. So mm-hmm. maybe there would have been no American War of Independence against France. Maybe. We'll come to that one next year. Uh, and had French become the dominant language in the United States, the United States then being so much bigger than France would have become the dominant partner in the partnership. And maybe um, French would have become the international language of business rather than English. Mm, right, right. That's interesting. I I never thought about that. If the Americans had been Frenchized, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, create a word there, Frenchized. What would have been kind of like? I mean, they would have taken up the Napoleonic code. Yeah. Yeah. So would it have been a more functional society today had they taken up French? You know. Ooh, mm. You know, given given that the French were the first to kind of, you know, create modern version of the mock, you know, somewhat. Yeah. I wouldn't say the, the concept of a um, you know no monarch rule. You know they kind of tend to agree. Mm. Yeah, but it's it, well, it's a bit of a misnomer because I mean well, the guy did I mean, they did abolish monarchy or something like that, and then and then Napoleon went back into it. But it was mm. some sort of like a, a strange, a different kind of monarchy. In a, in a sense, it was like a bloodline because Napoleon was not of you know royal birth, obviously. He certainly wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but I heard that remnants of his family, the descendants, are still around today, and they're considered nobility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, obviously, yeah. So, um, we want to move on now to to look at the um, American War of Independence. Um, what if George the Third's ministers, who was King of England in the latter half of the 18th century, had been more conciliatory towards the American colonists? and hadn't imposed such um, swinging taxes upon them to actually pay for the Seven Years' War, funnily enough. Um, if they hadn't done that, would the American colonists have uh, not um, declared independence in 1776? Had there been no American War of Independence and the United States had not come about and remained a colony like Canada and then became a dominion like Canada and then become a self-governing independent state but with still with a queen of head of state how how different might the world have been would you know can you imagine the United States huge as it is being part of England little England's empire do you think mm. I don't know. I mean, the American attitude has risen. I've discussed this with the Americans here, some of the my friends here in Novosibirsk, and I've always considered Americans are basically they're a culture of warriors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they fight. Yeah, they 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 use aggression. Yeah, and I've always felt that you know um, even with that you know even if that was imposed on them, that constitutional monarchy system eventually Americans will find a way to rebel against it and fight mm-hmm. against it. If you look at uh, how the Americans have sort of expanded from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast, it was all done through a succession of wars. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they spilled blood to gain their territory. Yeah. So, you know, when they went into the Midwest, they had to fight off the natives, mm-hmm. right? And then through a succession of wars and treaties, 
they won those territories. When they went into Texas and California, they had to fight the Mexicans. Mm-hmm. And then and they won. And they won those territories. Yeah. Um, so I always felt that um, you know, these guys have always fought, fought and fought. And it, and that tradition continues on even today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we're always fighting wars, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every ten years there's a new war. Yeah. And all the um coalition forces have to join in on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're on the contract to do that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I wonder. Um taking a slightly different tack, the present uh, troubles in the United States over race, I wonder if that something slightly different may have happened. Um, for instance, the slave trade was abolished in England in 1807 and throughout the empire in 1832, whereas they had to have a civil war and then slavery wasn't abolished until 1864 and abolished almost only in name for most of the blacks in the southern states remained certainly at the bottom of the socio-economic pile and many would say still are. Maybe if um, the United States had remained part of the British Empire, the abolition of slavery coming earlier, the cessation of the trade coming earlier, um, maybe the present problems the United States have with race may not have been so bad. I have a different opinion on that because actually uh, the riots are happening in London too right now. Right? So, true, true. So, um, in fact, the only you know English-speaking zones where the riots are not happening is actually in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I don't know. I think there's, there's a little bit of a fundamental difference between the way yeah, um, these nations sort of at the base level, how race politics sort of play out. Mm-hmm. And so even if, you know, officially slavery is abolished, that doesn't mean that you're granting a certain group of people certain privileges that uplifts them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit skeptical on that idea. You know, um, I've always felt that um, um, you know, especially in cases like Australia, yeah, where everything is sort of peaceful and, and everybody sort of gets along. The one group that is in well, one group that is currently protesting um, uh, are actually the Aboriginals, the Native Australians, mm-hmm. and they feel that they've been kept down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so as as a group for a very very long time, so they are actually protesting, but it's not a riot. They're not going into violence or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, so I always felt that uh, for them to gain that sort of privileges um, of a middle class, perhaps. Uh, is to essentially separate ourselves away from the old Britain and America and the Chinese influence. Um, essentially establish a complete republic that is independent. I've always believed that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, well, the thing is, is I, you know, Australia has inherited a lot of the, the British sort of, um, um, constitutional monarchy sort of, um, system. But I've always felt that there's a fundamental difference between the attitude of Australians and uh, British when it comes to class. Mm. Yeah, um, I think when I when I have met a lot of um, British people, there is a concept of class in that country. There still is. Yeah, there's a concept of class economically and in terms of privilege and whatnot. But in Australia, nobody gives a damn. Yeah, it's just one of those countries that should have been egalitarian right from the beginning, and it was supposed to be. But I'm not sure if it is sometimes. What do you think on that? 
Well, uh, the class system in Britain, uh, there are people who say it still exists, but uh, to be honest, I think it, it, it's dead, it's died, it's gone. Oh, yeah, yeah it, it doesn't really exist anymore. Um, yes, we have an aristocracy still. Yes, we still have the royal family. Yes, we still have the House of Lords, but mm. it, it's a, a pale shadow of its former self. Um, your status in society now is more to do with the thickness of your bank, you know, the thickness of your, your mm. wallet or the mm. size of your bank account. It's got nothing to do with whether or not, you know, you've got a double-barreled surname, to be honest. If anything, um, it, it's there's an inverse snobbery now about things like that. Um, the, the, I suppose the new upper class are mm. the, the, the meritocracy of people who've gained most from the education they had in the 60s, 70s, 80s, people like myself, um, who went to university and um, didn't have to pay tuition fees and have risen up the economic scale mm. because of um, their educational achievements and the opportunities they had. Whereas, you know, being born into a coal mining family and staying as a coal miner and your grandchildren being coal miners, that's gone. And one of my friends at university, his father's a coal miner. He is a retired chartered accountant. So I think uh, that class system thing has gone now in Britain. There's an interesting um, documentary series that came out of Britain many years ago, 50 years ago now plus. Um, I think it's called The Up Series. Um, basically by a documentarian mm -hmm. called Michael Aptad. Mm -hmm. And um, the concept is very simple. Um, you get a seven-year-old across various class classes, uh, from, the, uh, from the wealthy to the poor, and then you document them every seven years. So when, once when they're seven, 14, 21, 28, 35, and so on. Now, last year was when the children turned 60-something. Yeah, so, you know, it was, um, and, and of course, it's essentially, uh, Michael Ted has said that basically the premise of the story, the premise of the documentary, the underlying fundamental question, the thematic, was um, does class play a role in your destiny? Yeah, so if you were born poor at age seven, will you be poor by the time you're 35? And so on and so on. And will your children be poor? Yeah. And ironically, actually supports your argument is that there was no such distinction. Yeah, there's no, there's no such. Um, it's the path was all different for everybody. Yeah. Um, so how the kids started in seven is not how they ended up when they were forty something, and vice versa. Yeah. It's interesting enough because uh, for the Russian audiences listening to this, there is actually one created for the SSSR. Yeah, so the children are now hitting uh, 36 this year or 37. La uh, last year was when the, the 35 up was supposed to come out. Yeah, so and one of them, one of the subjects actually lives in Novosibirsk. Yeah, he was a guy from Kazakhstan um, and came here and started working in the markets. Yeah, his name was Almaz. Yeah, so it's interesting because I've been trying to track this guy down. Yeah, apparently he works in the market. He's one of those gastrobiters, you know, what they call here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. For him, he felt that at age seven, when the SSSR was around, he felt that everything was much more fairer. But by the time he turned um, 25, 21 or whatever, and came over here and started working, he realized that there was now like economic class. And therefore he felt like he was left out of it, uh, left out of the middle class life. 
right? Whereas other people have had, of course, different lives. So um, there's one for the United States, there's one for the USSR, there's one for the Britain. And Michael Apted has essentially inspired this trend of documenting kids at age seven. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, in that sense, I suppose in in Britain, a lot of this class struggle, uh, the class, um, you know, the concept of a class, is becoming blurred or has become blurred right back from decades ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's. I have seen that series actually. I think I saw some bits of the most recent one in in Britain. Yes. Um, and I, uh, the idea is is the Jesuit idea of give me the boy until he's seven, I'll yeah. show you the man. Correct. I'd really like to see the um, the Russian version actually. So perhaps Mike, you can give me the link later. YouTube. <laughs> yeah, YouTube. YouTube. It's all on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> but um, the Russian one has been was supposed to come out last year, thirty five mm-hmm. up or whatever, thirty six up. But it actually got delayed, uh-huh. and the re- I know the reason why. The Russian filmmaker who's in charge of it picked too many subjects to begin with, uh-huh. like double the amount that the mm-hmm. original did. And Russia is a big country. Mm-hmm. You know, to to go around all these territories and film the, the lives of these kids have now who have now grown up and have children of their own is a monumental task that mm-hmm. takes time. So I think the timing was a little bit unrealistic when mm-hmm. they first scheduled it. Yeah, but yeah. Okay, so our next um, "What if Cleopatra's nose had been longer?" Um, is a bit further, a bit longer ago in history. Uh, Catherine of Aragon had she given birth to a healthy male heir and secured the Tudor succession, would Henry VIII have started the Reformation in England? Now, a little bit of background for those who don't know. Henry VIII was the second Tudor monarch. He's the one who had six wives, if you recall. Um, He was married off to his um, deceased elder brother's widow, one Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon, and she gave birth to a number of stillborn children, one healthy daughter, but... She could not produce a healthy son. She did produce one, but he died after a week, I think. She was older than Henry, and when she reached the point in her life where she could no longer um, conceive, he started looking around and started thinking about the succession because his father came to the throne after um, the end of the Wars of the Roses, which is a period of about 40 years of almost constant civil war in Britain. And... He didn't want that to happen again. He wanted his line, his Tudor family, to continue to rule Britain, and he wanted a male heir. Catherine of Aragon couldn't provide one. At the same time, he, of course, being a medieval monarch, had numerous mistresses. One Anne Boleyn came into his view, and he was smitten with Anne Boleyn. She was young enough to give him a son, and eventually he decided, right, Catherine's got to go, I'm going to marry Anne. Now, this was not an unusual thing in those days, but, of course, they'd been married in the Catholic Church because everybody in Europe was then a Catholic. But he could get a dispensation from the Pope to have the marriage annulled. After all, she was his elder brother's widow. They'd find something in the scriptures to say that shouldn't have been done, right? But... Catherine's nephew was the Holy Roman Emperor and he at that point had invaded Italy and the Pope was effectively his prisoner and she appealed to her nephew to prevent the annulment and so Henry was then in a 
problem. He he couldn't persuade the Pope to give him an annulment. He wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. So his only solution was divorce Catherine. The only way he could do that was to leave the Catholic Church and start the Reformation in Britain. Had Catherine of Aragon produced a son, maybe that would have happened. England would still be Catholic. We'd never have had all sorts of things like maybe the English Civil War would have happened, the Spanish Armada. Mike, what do you think? You know, I wanted to go back to actually Napoleon on this one. Now he was, he was, um, now his ascension to emperorhood mm -hmm. was authorized by the Pope as well. So he had a similar kind of deal going on. So what's the, what's the relationship here between the Pope and the European leaders and plus the British leaders? I mean, there, there seems to be this sort of, the Pope is, he legitimatizes the rules of rulers. So he's sort of the king, king authorizer or king, not king maker, but a king authorizer. But then he owes people favors and he has to kind of, kind of capitulate, even though he doesn't want to, I'm sure. I mean, is that, is that kind of the relationship that, you know, has always existed between the British kings and, and the Pope as well. Well, up until Henry VIII. That's yes, right. So he, that's why he wants uh, mm. right. This is why the Anglican Church is right. That's he why the Queen is head of the Church of England. Mm. See, so, so Henry right. started his own church. He was right. Gonna... So they wanted to be free away from mm. that 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 system mm -hmm. that was prevalent at the time, mm -hmm. prevalent at the time where you have to be authorized by the Pope in order to rule legitimately mm -hmm. in your country. Mm -hmm. Right, so why didn't the other European kings do that? Well, because in the yeah. case of the Holy Roman Emperor, who was, if you like, the, the king of Austria and Spain at the same time, the Habsburgs, mm. they were Catholic, but he had invaded Italy and he controlled the Pope, so the Pope did what he told him to do. Right. But at the same time, the French, they sometimes, they used to fight the, the the Austrians continually for control of Italy. And sometimes the French had control of the Pope. And then it, it was never, it never came about that there was no any, there's no necessity for a split between the French king, the French monarch, and um, the the head of the church, if you like, until, you know, the revolution. And then all kings were got rid of in France. But Spain remained a Catholic monarchy until the 1830s. Austria remained a Catholic monarchy until 1919. Um, but there was a reformation spread across Northern Europe. So all the Northern monarchs, Scandinavia and Germany, like um, what Prussia, which became Germany later, if you like, they became Protestants and split with the Pope. But that was all to do with the Thirty Years' War, which came a century later. So going back to the main topic here, what if Cleopatra's nose had been longer? So had Christianity not been, so had the Pope not existed, in other words, mm -hmm. what would have happened to this whole continent of Western Europe? You mean, had Christianity not taken root? Yeah, so if there was no Pope to legitimize people's rules and people having battles over this, so what would have happened without the central sort of authority figure? So what was the religion before Catholicism, before Christianity? Well, everybody had their own pagan religions. Yeah, yeah, pagan religion. But, yes. what, but I ask you this question, yeah. what big religion sprang up in the 7th century in the Middle East, which spread across large parts of the world. Islam. Islam. So, had there been no Christian, if there was a vacuum, if you like, in yeah. Europe, uh, would Islam have spread right across Northern Europe? Maybe. But they would have to get their armies there in the first place. That's true. Yes. Right? So, it would have been a different player coming into the vacuum. Well, who, 
you know, this is the thing. I mean, it, right. this is the, the big question: what, what, what would have filled the vacuum uh, that Christianity would have left? I can't imagine people two thousand years ago who they all worshipped something. If it wasn't a stone, it was the sun or mm-hmm. a, a Roman statue. Mm-hmm. Would they have been uh, um, able or wanting to um, keep Islam out, or would they have accepted it? Who knows? I don't know. Mm, that's an interesting question for our audiences, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that wraps up our lesson or our talk session conversation for what if Cleopatra's nose had been longer. This has been Big Apple School podcast. This is Mike, and this is John signing off.